The prophecies are starting to pile up as we study this book. Have you noticed that? It gets a little more difficult to organize what we've seen and remember where we are so far. So we're going to start by doing that. I figured this was as good a time as any uh, when you see the, the passage, you understand why. To give you a, a basic breakdown that we're going to follow for the rest of the book about what we've seen and what the Bible is prophesying that is going to happen. Calvary Chapel takes a, an approach to the interpretation of prophecy that is traditionally called literal interpretation, which is defined as we interpret prophecy according to the normal rules of language, that we do not believe that there is some secret hidden spiritual meaning that nobody can puzzle out. We believe there are symbols and figures of speech and all the rest of that, but that it's all pointing to something that is literal and actually going to happen, that these are legitimate foretellings of the future. And in combination with Daniel, with Zechariah, with Jesus and the Olivet Discourse, with Paul and the Thessalonian epistles and elsewhere, uh, you can arrive at a pretty clear picture of what the Bible says is going to happen at the end of the world. So I took some time last night and tried to uh, get some alliteration going to help us remember this, and I was able to do it. So uh, we're going to go through what we've seen so far, what we believe will be happening at the end of the world up to this point in chapter 11. And the first one is the rapture of the church. Uh, the book of Revelation I believe makes allusion or reference to the rapture of the church, that there will be a day when all of God's people, the church will be caught up to heaven uh, for protection during this time. There's a million reasons why we believe that. We've gotten into all of them beforehand. I'll just give you one today. The time of the tribulation is when God is pouring out his wrath on the world. And for the Christian, all of our wrath was taken upon Jesus Christ at the cross. Others disagree, and I like to think that if you're going through this Bible study with us, even if you disagree on the date of the rapture or other uh, points of interpretation, you'll still be able to, to get along and to be edified. So, um, but that is what we believe. That first thing that happens is the rapture of the church. Now we get into what the book of Revelation has actually described so far. Number two is the rise of Babylon. We've really not talked much about this yet. That starts up more in chapter 12 and 13 especially. That there will be a terrible, tyrannical regime that will rise to power and conquer the world. The first seal that Jesus opened was a man on a white horse conquering and to conquer. It's going to bring destruction, famine, death. It's not going to be a peaceful transition. It's going to be horrible. And the whole world economy is going to collapse and people are going to die when this empire rises. And we have not yet gotten into details about what this empire might look like or who it might be. The Bible calls it Babylon. We're going to call them Babylon until that time. So the church is raptured. Babylon rises. Number three is the ravage of God's people. This is very plain. We've seen this quite a bit in this book so far, that there will be a great many that are martyred during this time. Even though we believe in the rapture of the church, the Bible is clear that during the tribulation, there will be an innumerable multitude that comes to salvation and they will be persecuted for it. And also, Revelation has a strong Jewish tone to it. It's very clear that the Jews are going to be oppressed as well. That the Antichrist's nation, the Babylon, will oppress the world. God will preserve a remnant of his people through this time, but God's people are going to be ravaged, both the nation of Israel ethnically and those that call on the name of Jesus spiritually. Number four, we've seen the ruin of the planet. There has been a great 
earthquake so far with many stars falling from heaven. And you can interpret this a number of ways. Some people believe that the earthquake that has many stars fallen from heaven is, is really one single event that is then described individually following that. Not so sure about that interpretation, but what is clear is that the earth will be shaken Stars will be falling from heaven that will poison the fresh and salt water, burn up the plants on the earth, and blot out the sky. And there are some that see that as a reference to warfare, maybe even nuclear exchange. The point is, the whole planet is dying, that there's plants being burned up and the water is, is not drinkable. And in fact, as we move on, we get to the seven bowls, we're going to see that it's going to escalate to the point where there's no more clean water. There's no more plants to be found. The earth is being destroyed. And then last time we discussed number five, the revenge of the devil. See, they're all R. Hopefully it'll help you remember that. Had a thesaurus open last night. It was very helpful. The revenge of the devil. That God will open the abyss. We talked about the abyss is God's demon prison. Where he will unleash demonic locusts that will afflict mankind for five months without death. And then he will release demonic horsemen to slay multitudes of men. That God will allow Satan to afflict the world pretty much without restraint, except for that which the Lord has, has specifically said. That not only this long and no farther, but it's going to be pretty bad. So, this is what you've seen. The, the church has been raptured. This empire has risen. They are afflicting God's people. Meanwhile, there are cosmic celestial acts of God that are destroying the planet, and including one that allows the devil to have his way on the earth. And we've talked about each one of these things in detail, what they might mean. And we're actually going to see, as we go through Revelation, 12 of these points in total. And tonight we're going to start looking at number six in the sequence, which we're going to call the refuge of the faithful. This is going to continue for several chapters. But I think once we get to the end and we have this list of what's going to be 12 things, that'll give you a pretty clear picture of what's going to happen in the end times. So here we go. We're in chapter 11. Let's start by reading these first two verses. This is, of course, John the Apostle speaking. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Let's remember where we are. We began with the scene in heaven where Jesus takes the scroll, representative of God's plan for the end. He began to open the seven seals, each one revealing a judgment. When he opened the seventh seal, seven angels were giving trumpets. So the seventh seal contains these seven trumpet judgments. And we've already seen six of them. But there is a slight interlude in this prophecy from Revelation 10 and 11. At the end of this chapter, we're going to see trumpet number seven blown. And trumpet number seven will eventually contain the seven bowls or the seven vials is the older translation. And uh, all of it is technically under that seventh seal. It's just, it's so bad that it's like, it, it's nested. It keeps getting worse. So in the middle of this, this interlude, John is given a measuring rod. He's told, go out and measure the temple but not the outer courts. He says, measure the temple. The word there is naos. Uh, that word naos specifically refers to the sanctuary of the temple. There's a word that means hieron, which means the entire temple complex. But he's specifically being told to just measure the sanctuary itself and the inner court with the altar. There's two altars in the temple. The holy place had the golden altar of incense 
and the inner court had the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made. And that seems to be what he's measuring there because there wouldn't have been worshipers in the holy place. There would have just been a priest on certain occasions. So he's not measuring the whole thing, not the outer courts. And this is a very familiar picture if you know your Bible. There's two other places in the Old Testament where a prophet is told by God to measure something or to observe the measuring of something. The first one comes in Ezekiel chapter 40, where the angel is measuring out the new temple that's going to be built, we believe, perhaps during the millennial kingdom. It's obviously very symbolic as well. It's not very important what that's referring to today. And then in Zechariah chapter 2, we see another angel measuring, measuring the, the temple, measuring God's people. Both of those prophecies are to communicate hope in the middle of distress. During Ezekiel's day, the temple had been destroyed. So seeing God making plans for a new, bigger, and better one is a hopeful thing for the people. As was Zechariah, whose people were coming back from exile, and they were trying to build this temple, and the Lord is measuring it out and saying, don't worry, we're going to be okay. It's a sign of hope in the midst of distress, and I believe that's what we have here as well. He says, don't measure the outer courts. So let's remind ourselves of this. He had the Holy of Holies, as it's called, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Only one guy could go in there once a year. That was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That most holy place was within what's called the holy place, where you had the golden altar of incense, the golden table of showbread, and the golden lampstand with the seven lamps. This is where the priests would come. They would burn incense. They'd replace the showbread, and they would... Uh, yeah, that's where they would, they would minister, but only the priests could go in there. Outside of that, you had the inner court where you had the bronze altar where all the sacrifices were made. This is where the men were to come. Outside of that, you have what were called the outer courts. You had something called the court of the women, which was only for the Jews to go into. And outside of that, you had the court of the Gentiles, which was for anybody to come into. And this place was enormous. The temple was used not just as a place of worship, but the outer courts especially were used for many civic functions. This is where you see Jesus preaching in the temple. He was preaching in the outer courts. When you see the church gathering in Solomon's portico in the book of Acts, they're meeting in the outer courts of the temple. It's the outer courts of the temple that Jesus cleansed when he rode into Jerusalem and said, you shall not make my father's house a house of merchandise because it was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come and worship. And so he says, don't measure that. You're only measuring pretty much the, the bare bones of the temple, the places where we actually performed the ceremonies. And the reason he gives is that they, meaning the Gentiles, will trample the holy city for three and a half years, 42 months. It is given over to the nations the ethne, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the measurement is, I, I believe, God's way of expressing that there will be a remnant and I will preserve it through this time. But the main function of this prophecy is to let him know it's not going to look good, John. We've not been given much in terms of time and duration so far in the book of Revelation. But now we've got this reference to 42 months, three and a half years. So I want to back up a little bit and focus on it. Because I've been saying that the tribulation period covers seven years. Uh, but we've not really seen that term seven years in the book of Revelation. We see three and a half years quite a bit. So what's the deal here? Well, you've got to go back to another prophecy from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. In this verse, Daniel is talking about the Antichrist, who we'll talk more about him in chapter 13, but he is the dictator at the head of Babylon. 
Remember we talked about Babylon rising? The dictator that will eventually lead this place is called the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. Several names he's given in the Bible, but Antichrist is the one we use most often. But it says, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. One week, there's one seven. These are weeks of years. So for one seven. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So he will make a strong covenant with many for one week, one seven-year period. Babylon will rise, apparently amidst its conquest, with a seven-year covenant with many. That specifically, according to that passage and the whole tone of Daniel, refers to the nation of Israel. That, among other things, the Antichrist will make an arrangement, Babylon will make a deal with Israel, that I would imagine would allow them to continue their worship, that would allow them to be less than subjugated under Babylon. But he says, after half a week, so halfway through that, half of seven years is three and a half years, 42 months. So halfway through, he says he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. This is specifically sacrifice and offering in Israel's holy place. Halfway through, they will do this, and then there will be desolations that will be poured out. That halfway point of the seven-year period is one of the most talked-about points of eschatology in the Bible. And it comes from the language that Daniel uses there. Jesus refers to it as the abomination of desolation. You should write that down if you're taking notes. The abomination of desolation. Jesus and Paul spoke about it when the Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice. I believe that is what Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2 is referring to. Paul gives us the most specific explanation of what this means. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, talking about the Antichrist again, the man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's going to come a day, to bring all this together, where there will be a seven-year period, a seven-year treaty that Babylon makes with Israel among other nations. But after three and a half years, this Antichrist will step up into the temple of God, declare himself to be God, and mandate that he alone be worshipped and nobody else. And I believe that that is what John is revealed here when he says that the holy city, Jerusalem, will be trampled for 42 months. Because how, how much time is left in that week? Three and a half years, 42 months. So there's going to come a point where this, this sanctuary is going to be defiled, just as Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the previous temple. Now here's the question. There is no temple in Israel right now. On the Temple Mount, you have something called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is where Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven. It's an incredibly blasphemous thing to be sitting there where the temple used to be. And so many will look at this and they'll say, okay, well, it obviously can't mean that. What else could it mean? But that is also what folks used to say before Israel returned to their land. They say all these prophecies about Israel. Well, Israel doesn't even exist anymore. It must mean something else. Then 1948 happens and now there's an Israel. And I believe that it's pretty clear from this picture that the temple will be rebuilt. Paul very explicitly says that the Antichrist will take his seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. There is no temple, therefore the implication is one will be built. So those that say, well, 
the Bible prophesies the temple will be rebuilt. It's an implied prophecy. Because there's things that are taking place in a place that doesn't exist right now. So we're expecting that it will come about. I do not believe, and you should not say, that the temple has to be rebuilt in order for the rapture to happen or any such thing. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to happen. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. It'll happen like a thief in the night. No one's going to expect it. It could very well be part of the deal that Babylon makes with Israel. Is we'll let you rebuild your temple. We'll sort out the Muslims and keep them in check. In fact, that's why some people believe that the court of the Gentiles is excluded here because the temple is going to be built alongside the mosque where the courts of the Gentiles used to be. But that is, that is speculation, although I think it's interesting to think about. So what are we seeing here? It says measure the temple. There's going to be one. The Antichrist is going to defile the temple. Daniel tells us halfway through a seven-year period. And John is warning that after this, 42 months will the city be trodden upon. It'll be trampled. Jesus in Mark 13 warns the Jews to flee from Jerusalem when that day comes. When you see that abomination of desolation, when you see somebody standing in the temple and proclaiming to be God, you get out of Dodge immediately. And we'll discuss that more next chapter. But, um, you know, I, as I've said, there are differences of opinion on the rapture and the end times. Sometimes I've been asked, well, what would it take for you to believe that, uh, or, or to say, well, I'm, I was wrong about the rapture. And I'm very honestly, not facetiously, if there comes a day where Somebody, a world leader stands in the temple, declares himself to be God. I was wrong. I was wrong. I don't believe that the church as it exists today will live to see that day, but that is the next big sign to look for. And so we ought to keep that in mind. So according to our timeline in the book of Revelation, we are at the halfway point. The abomination of desolation has taken place. The temple needs protection from the Lord because the holy city is going to be trampled for 42 months. More on that in the coming weeks. Here's a very interesting piece of, of scripture. Verse 3. And I, the Lord says, will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Here's a new element of prophecy that we only see a little bit mentioned in Zechariah, but you never would have expected this if you didn't have revelation. So here's a new piece to add. The two witnesses... Who will prophesy at this time? Why two witnesses? Because according to Deuteronomy 17.6, every charge must be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the Bible says. The Lord, during the tribulation, will raise up two prophets to serve as witnesses. Witnesses to what? Why doesn't he just call them prophets, even though they're prophesying? Because they're testifying of the gospel. And someone who testifies of the gospel is called a witness. The word is martyr in Greek. It's where we get the English word martyr. It doesn't originally mean to die for your faith. It means to maintain the testimony of your faith. So God will raise up two prophetic figures, evangelists you might call them, to speak the gospel in the holy city while it's being trampled. Just as John in the previous chapter was told, you've got to keep testifying, John. Remember we thought that John maybe at this point was getting a little seasick and might not want to continue with this prophecy. And he was told to go and eat the little book. And it was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Says, you've got to keep prophesying. This little interlude is all about God maintaining the testimony, even in the midst of all this trouble. And so, these two will be speaking during this time. God will never leave himself without a witness. And perhaps these are going to be the ones that reveal what the seven thunders mean. I don't know. Because we don't know anything about the seven thunders other than we don't know what they are. So I'm going to leave that alone. 
But it says they're prophesying in sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Well, it's like burlap. You're taking off your fine clothes. You're putting on something that is uncomfortable and obviously something that speaks of poverty and grief to somebody else. In the Bible, they would often pour ashes on their head as well as a sign of mourning, shave their heads, shave their beards. Why are they prophesying this way? Well, as a lament, no doubt for the desolation of Jerusalem that's happening. They're weeping over the fact that the temple has been violated, that now there's idolatry. There's going to be, as we're going to read, idols in the temple and the whole world is being compelled to worship them. God's uh, chosen people, Israel, are being chased into the wilderness or slaughtered. There are more Christian martyrs around the world than can even be counted. So they're speaking in grief. And this timing here is important for 1,260 days. That is 42 months. That is three and a half years. That is half of a week. Time, times, and half a time, the Bible says sometimes, to put it that way. So they're going to prophesy for half of the seven years. And this is a matter of debate. Are they prophesying for the first three and a half years, pre-abomination of desolation, or the second three and a half years, post-abomination of desolation? Uh, I was taught, not like dogmatically, but I was taught, and this is how Tim LaHaye, who is, of course, a very famous prophecy teacher, has it, that this happens during the first half of the tribulation, and that the death of the two witnesses is sort of the mark that the Antichrist time has come. However, I do believe I'm going to change my mind on this one, because it seems, according to the context of this passage, that the rise of the two witnesses is tied to the trampling of the holy city, which I believe is a reference to that abomination of desolation at the midpoint, that they're going to prophesy after Jerusalem has been defiled. When the Jews begin to flee, when the Jews are getting out of Jerusalem, they will stand up in direct opposition to the Antichrist. And you can have a difference of opinion on that. Have some fun in your home fellowships talking about it. But uh, that's how I'm going to talk about it today. But just imagine this, that Babylon has risen and has been ravaging the world. But the whole world has been doing stars falling from heaven, the grass is being burned up, the, the water is poisoned, the sun is not giving its light, perhaps giving rise to an ice age, according to certain speculations. So it's not good. Now we've got demons ravaging the world, whether visible or invisible, it's not entirely clear, but it's bad. So what's going to happen is the Antichrist will consolidate his power, defile God's temple and say, you worship me now. And the Jews will scatter and leave Jerusalem. The city will be trampled. And yet in the middle of the city, there's these two guys in sackcloth prophesying. They're going to take a stand. It's, it's, a, it's a biblical picture, you might say. It's an epic vision of what's going to happen at the end of the world. That they're going to prophesy and no doubt be preaching the gospel and interpreting the plagues that are going on around them. Because you know there's just going to be some talking heads on TV if TV survives this whole thing. Saying about, well, I mean, this really has just happened sometimes. You know, sometimes demons crawl out of the earth. It just happens, you know. But these guys are going to be the ones standing up and saying, no, this is that. This is what the Lord has prophesied. Let's learn a little bit more about them. That's the nature of their witness, that they're going to be prophesying for 1,260 days in sackcloth. Let's look at the power of their witness. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Okay, so now you get the power of their ministry, as well as their Old Testament 
equivalent, the prophecy that references them. These are amazing men. These are not exactly nice people. The Lord has got a job for them. You, you are the end times prophets. You know, they're, they're not going to be soft men, let's put it that way. God's prophets never are, but let's continue. Where do, we, where do we get this from? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, maybe everybody else knows what that is, but I have no clue what he's talking about. Well, let's help you out. This is from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is another one of those books like Daniel, like Matthew 24, like Thessalonians, that if you're just going to look at Revelation on its own, you're going to miss pieces. We've got a comprehensive picture that the Bible paints, and we know because right here, Revelation is referring back to Zechariah. I'm going to read selected verses from this passage, starting with verses 2 and 3. The angel said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. So it's one of, like the, think of the menorah figure, right? The, the seven lamps on the lampstand with a bowl above it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So the picture he has is there's this lampstand that's burning and there's two olive trees and the, the olive oil is dripping directly into this bowl that is then feeding the lamps. The picture is this is a lamp that will never go out because it's constantly being fed with olive oil from these trees. And this is where you get that great verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? He's not responsible for you to maintain the light. I'll keep the light going. But in verse 12 through 14 is more uh, pertinent to our study today. A second time I answered the angel and said to them, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And the angel said to me, do you not know what these are? <laughs> Poor Zechariah. I said, no, my Lord, I don't. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Isn't it interesting how sometimes the angels are like, come on, you, surely you know what that is. And it's like, well, no, because I'm not an angel. I don't live there. I'm sure there'd be things that angels don't quite get if they were to live in the physical world too. But he said, these are the two anointed ones. So you've got the two trees that according to Zechariah represent two, uh, the two anointed ones. And then in chapter four, or verse 4 of Revelation 11, there's a second lampstand here. But it's clearly the same image. That these two are shining like the light of the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they have come down to the earth to maintain that testimony. Spirit-empowered witnesses. So just a little note here. There are some people when it comes to interpreting prophecy that very much make the point you shouldn't press the details. You don't want to be making mountains out of molehills. You don't want to be mining things out that have, have no relation to something else. That point is well taken because there are some folks that just go cuckoo with it and I'm sure you've met some of them. However, I do want to point out that Book of Revelation is making reference to very obscure verses in the Old Testament and making rather significant predictions concerning them. So the Bible is intended to be mined as deeply as it can be. And we're not just looking for broad strokes. The details matter too. But I'm going to move on. So the Holy Spirit is empowering these two lampstands, right? And you can tell that they're empowered by the Holy Spirit by these miraculous things they do. They call fire from heaven against their enemies. Fire from their mouths. I think this is similar to when it says Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think these are like dragons breathing fire on people. I think it's like, like Elijah. That at their word, when their mouth speaks, fire comes down from heaven. Although maybe they are breathing fire. I don't know. It could be. There's nothing in the text that would say that's not possible. It says they hold back the rain. They can shut 
the sky. They turn water to blood, which will be happening on the earth at this time. And they can cause other various plagues. They have full permission from the Holy Spirit to bring about whatever plague they want. Well, that's an incredible amount of heavenly authority, isn't it? I love talking about the authority we have in Christ and the, the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. But it's always under the sovereignty of God. And the Lord distributes each one gifts as he will. Well, these guys get, they've got the, the gift of signs and wonders. And these things that they do are rather familiar to us. And if you want to have some fun in your home fellowship, I, I know y'all are going to talk about this one. So let's go ahead and give you your, your uh, pieces to work with. Are these witnesses men that we have seen before? That's the big question. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to give you a definite answer, but it will be fun to talk about. Because when you see these guys, the things they do remind us of certain figures. And if these two witnesses are men that God has returned to the earth, as some have taught from the beginning of the church, like this is going back to guys like Irenaeus that have thought this, so this is not an innovation, that we got some options here. Number one is Elijah. Because what did Elijah do? Elijah called down fire from heaven. Not just at Mount Carmel, but when the king was trying to summon him with an army, he kept on toasting the envoys that were coming to him. He says, come on down, prophet of God. He says, if I'm a prophet of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. Froosh. And they got consumed. Until finally one guy shows up with like the white flag. Like, please don't, please just come with me. Because if you don't kill me, he's gonna. And then Elijah came. He also held back the rain, of course. He went to Ahab and said, not, not do, not rain, except at my word. And uh, there's also an interesting verse in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it says that Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. Now, Jesus said that that was at least partly, or shall we say, typologically fulfilled by John the Baptist. I think that's primarily referring to Jesus Christ, I would think. But there, it is just an interesting little verse when you consider this passage. So that's number one. Number two is Moses. Because we're turning water to blood and we're raising up plagues on the earth. That's Moses' thing. That Moses did that. Now, it wasn't as he could turn water to blood anytime he wanted to. But this time, he will have that power. And there's another interesting verse in Deuteronomy 18, verse 5, when it said that, that the Lord will send before the end another prophet like Moses. Once again, I believe that is primarily and perhaps exclusively referring to Jesus Christ as the prophet like Moses, who's in fact greater than Moses. But again, it is just interesting that he said something like that. And one of the early church's favorite choices is that the other one would be Enoch. Enoch, you might not even know who that is. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, tells us that this man Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. If you want to have some fun, we'll call that the first rapture in the Bible. The first time somebody got taken up to heaven without dying. And that becomes a, a point of, in somebody's favor, that believes these are men returned from heaven, so to speak. That Enoch never died, neither did Elijah, because Elijah was caught up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And you could also say that Moses died on the mountain, God buried him, but you've got that strange reference in Jude to when the angels were disputing over the body of Moses. Why? Well, we don't know. I think Jude is making a different point than, than you know, talking about the metaphysics of Moses' bones here. But that, it's just interesting to look at that. You've got two guys that, that didn't die, so maybe they need to come back and die. Matthew 17, verse 3, the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples see Jesus, and he's got Moses on one hand and Elijah on the other hand, representative of the law and the prophets, of course, but that there they were. So 
It's, it's been a, a point of interpretation in the church since the earliest days that these are going to be men, saints of old, that are, that are returned. However, I will say you cannot say for certain. It is entirely possible that these are simply new prophets that are going to arise at this time. So option D would be other, right? Is it uh, Elijah, Moses, Enoch, or other? I, I really can't say for sure. It's fun to talk about. We need not decide. It's going to become pretty plain. Uh, if you read the Left Behind books, that's why their names are Eli and Moisha, because that's the Hebrew versions of Elijah and Moses. And they try real careful not to like say that that's definitely these guys, but you know, it's just, it's just fun to think about. The whole point, though, is that God is not going to allow the Antichrist to reign unchallenged. And whether or not it's actually Elijah and Moses, they will come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah and Moses. And they're going to make things rather difficult for the man of lawlessness. Until verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, or spiritually, is the literal translation there, is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth." Until their work is done, these two are invincible. That's a very famous Jerry Falwell quote as well, that a man of God is invincible until the Lord is done with him. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. It means God's going to fulfill his plan in you. But there will come a time for these two to die. And in verse, uh, verse 7, yeah, is our second reference in the book of Revelation to the Antichrist. The first was in chapter 6, verse 2, and even that one is disputed. When you saw the man riding on the white horse, that describes the rise of Babylon. I believe that individual would specifically be the Antichrist. But this is the first time he's called the beast. We've not met him yet. We will meet him in great detail in chapter 13. Little note here, it says in this passage, he rises out of the bottomless pit, the abyss. But when we see him, he's going to rise up out of the sea. Remember what I told you that it is entirely possible that the abyss is not in the bottom of the earth, but in the bottom of the ocean, because that's how the, the word is used, and that would reconcile those two passages. But what's he going to do? It says he's going to make war on them. He's going to rally the troops to deal with these guys, because, yeah, they can breathe fire, remember. And he's going to murder them. And there's two options here. This either happens on the day of the abomination of desolation, and I've heard people make a great case for that, that the Antichrist rides in, kills these two, and because he's able to do what nobody else could do, he ascends the Temple Mount and declares himself to be God. However, I think the best way to look at this is this happens during the campaign of Armageddon when Jerusalem, the city, will be sacked. We're going to talk more about that, of course. I know I have to keep saying that, but most of you are familiar with at least some of these things. He says he's going to make war on them. It's not just that he himself is going to step in and do the job. There's, there's a battle going on here that the Antichrist will defeat his enemies. He is going to march on Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. When he does, Zechariah tells us the city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked, that the women are going to be raped. People are going to be killed. It's going to fall. And I imagine part of that being the Antichrist comes in and executes the two prophets, the two witnesses. That also would explain why they're not buried right away. It's a battle scene. And it also would explain 
why everybody is able to look upon them, why some of the nations, and of course, I mean, with satellite technology, people can watch anything. But again, is that going to survive all of these things? I really don't even know. That, that picture makes an awful lot of sense to me. That when Jerusalem is sacked, that the armies are ravaging through, part of it is that the two witnesses are killed. And it is in Jerusalem because he says, spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt. But he go ahead and gives it away in the, in the end of the verse when he says, where the Lord was crucified. Well, we know where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified in Jerusalem. They're also prophesying in reference to the temple, which is going to be in Jerusalem. But it's now symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. I mean, is there any greater insult than to call Jerusalem Egypt? Right? That's kind of their whole thing. We're not Egypt. We came out of Egypt. But their depravity is going to be such at this point that Sodom and Egypt would be a more appropriate name for the city of Jerusalem. I also want you to notice that because later on when we discuss what city is Babylon, that we already have symbolic names for Jerusalem that are not Babylon. We'll talk about that more later, but it's in Jerusalem. They're not going to grant these two a burial. They're going to parade over their deaths. They're going to celebrate with gifts like Christmas because the whole world is going to know that these two are causing all this trouble. That they're the ones that are saying we're not going to, there's going to be a famine in Argentina for the next year, or we're not going to let any rain fall upon Australia, or there's going to be thunder and lightning that's going to ravage the crops in China. Like they're going to be speaking plagues on the world, and everybody's going to try to kill them, but every time somebody tries, they get burned up in fire. Well, finally, they're dead. So I don't know what they're going to call it. It's been three and a half years of this. What kind of holiday do you call that? Dead Prophet Day, I suppose, or probably something really PC, like Liberation Day or something like that. The beast has finally saved us. The Antichrist has finally put us up. All the plagues are now over. I imagine it would cause an awful lot of people to finally take that mark if they haven't done so already. I see this as part of his victory march. And I think that this event might give him just the confidence he needs to chase down the children of Israel that have fled to Basra, fled to the wilderness. We're going to see this in the next chapter, that the Lord is going to be preserving and protecting the Jews in the wilderness at this time. I imagine that would really bother the tyrant king of the world. There are certain people he can't hurt. But now when they finally had this big campaign, I'm finally able to kill the two guys who are protected. Maybe now he'll think, we can finally take care of these Jews. And then they're going to march into the wilderness. And that's when Jesus returns. More on that later too. Verses 11 and 12. It's actually not going to end the way he wants it to. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah. <laughs> then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So yet, like Jesus, they're going to rise again. Three and a half days. Significant number, because we're dealing in terms of seven and half of seven here. Imagine the great fear of those who watch this happening. That they've let them out to rot. They're still stinking in the sun. I would imagine the soldiers are debauched throughout the city. That There's all kinds of paganism and horrible things going on. And then they come back to life. They start to breathe. You know, the live stream of the dead prophet live stream. Are they moving? It's in the chat. Like, is he breathing right now? What's happening? And they're going to stand up on their feet. And when these guys were alive the first time, they were torching people. And now they're back from the dead. And everyone's going to be afraid. And then there's going to be a voice from heaven. They're going to be caught up in the air. Come up here. The same thing that the Lord said to John at the beginning of the book. Come up here. 
and everyone's going to have to watch. They're basically raptured. They're going to ascend like Jesus in full view. I love the parallels between the lives of these two witnesses and that of Christ. Testifying for three and a half years, which is kind of what Jesus did. Killed in the city, untouchable until that day comes, and then rising again and ascending to heaven. I, I can't teach the whole lesson today. I've done it before and I'll do it again. Your lives are intended, according to Paul and others, to be an imitation of the life of Christ. You likewise are to die to yourself, to rise in newness of life. And one day you will rise with him and ascend to heaven to be with him forever. You'll return with him on that day. Our lives have become a mirror of those of Jesus. Verse 13 and 14. They've ascended to heaven. I'm sure that might have put a damper on the party. And at that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Once they ascend to heaven, there's a great earthquake that will level a tenth of the city and kill 7,000 more people. And they're all going to know good and well why that happened. There are a lot of earthquakes in Revelation. And if you read the prophecies from the rest of the Bible, a lot of passages talk about the end as a time of earthquakes. Is there any, really anything more fearful when you stop and think about it than the earth shaking under your feet? Like we, we try to build things that will endure earthquakes today, but even still we haven't figured that one out. And I mean, you know, they love to joke about it, but all my friends in California are like, yeah, if we got a big enough earthquake, this little, we're just going to be detached and floating in the ocean, and California is going to be like New Atlantis. Like that's, there's, there's nothing to be done. Well, what, how do you fix it? You don't fix an earthquake, man. The earth decides to move, not a thing you can do about it, especially when God's the one moving it. And it is possible, in my opinion, that some of these earthquakes overlap with one another. That they're described, the same event is described as you go through, but different aspects of it. For example, I mentioned in Revelation 6, you've got the famous wrath of the Lamb earthquake, where the stars fall from heaven. And then the next few things you discuss are stars falling from heaven. So it's possible that that's all part of one big event or not. It's really not important for us to know that, but maybe it helps you uh, visualize this a little bit. It's possible, if, in the way that I understand the timing of this, that three and a half days after the Antichrist kills them, that it could be that this earthquake is going to be the one that's going to afflict Jerusalem, split apart the Mount of Olives, and make way for Jesus Christ to return. It could be that it's the same thing, but we don't know for sure. At this point, the people of earth know that they are fighting against God himself. There's not going to be like this atheistic misunderstanding. Oh, I didn't know what was going on. You're not going to live through this time and not believe in God anymore. It's going to be deliberate and open rebellion against God. We won't serve a God that would do this to us. Well, even though they good and well deserve it. And this vindication is going to remind them that they can only lose. We just won this battle. We destroyed the holy city. Nothing can stop us now. And then there's a big earthquake and 7,000 people die. Maybe we can't win after all. It says they give glory to God. I don't know if this is repentance, though. It might just be fear here. You know, when a great tragedy happens, even people that want nothing to do with God will come out and say, well, God works in mysterious ways. What are you going to do? And maybe they'll just be so petrified, they'll know, I've got to give glory to God in this one. Or maybe somebody will say some snide comment in the barracks about, oh, yeah, well, God can't stop us now. And somebody's like, you just, will you shut up talking about God? Because the last time we did this, he sent an earthquake and ravaged the whole city and everybody died. It's not so much repentance, although there might be some of that. I don't know if you'll be allowed to fight in the Antichrist army if you haven't taken his mark. But they're going to know who's in charge here. And then we see verse 14. The second woe has passed. 
Behold, the third woe is soon to come. You mean there's more? We're not done yet? Remember back earlier we saw the eagle flying through heaven declaring, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And it was the last three trumpets. Woe number one was the demon locusts. Woe number two was the demon horsemen, followed by the story of John eating the little book. And now this, the abomination of desolation, the two witnesses, and the earthquake that will result at their death. The second woe. You know, Revelation really is not giving us a, a, a it's, I think that Revelation is sequential, but it's not, it's kind of giving you pieces at a time. Like, it gives you the whole story of the two witnesses. It doesn't give you two witnesses. And while that was happening, this is happening. And while that's happening, this is happening, and eventually they're going to die. He's just going to say, here's the two witnesses. In a few chapters, we're going to talk about, here's everything about the city Babylon. Here's everything about the false prophet and his world religion. And so you've got to work all these together here. That uh, to make a sequence, which I think is what we're getting here, that after Babylon rises, God afflicts the world with plagues and demons. The Antichrist will arise, as will God's two witnesses. And this is what we call the refuge of the faithful, which we will build out more next time. That God is going to preserve his message and his messengers. That this is part of, these two witnesses are part of God's way of holding the line during this time. So we'll return to this sequence. We're not really going to add another piece to it for a while because it's, it's all starting to overlap and you've got to be able to, to sort this through. Verse 15 now, coming to the end of it. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So once more, we're back in the heavenly scene. John is observing things as they happen. And we're back there now, and the seventh trumpet is finally blown. And all that happens with the seventh trumpet is an announcement that now the kingdom is going to come. And we're going to have some more interludes here for a while until you get to chapter 16 where there's going to be seven bowls that are given to these angels. And all of that is contained under this seventh trumpet. Verse 15 is amazing. I love this verse. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And I was asked one time, say, wait a minute. Isn't this the end of, end of everything right here? Because we're seeing in the middle of the book, okay, he's begun to reign now. Well, yes and no. Remember, it doesn't always give you strict, you know, one thing led to another. The seventh trumpet, remember, is nested under the seventh seal. And these seven bowls are going to be part of this seventh trumpet. And it's going to rush to the finish. It's going to rush to the finish. It's going to all happen very quickly. And also, when you discuss the, the end of the two witnesses, that's, that's going to be the end, I would say. 
Just as it said in chapter 10, verse 6, there would be no more delay. You're going to see as we get through it, most of what's going to happen is that it's the intensification of the plagues that have already begun and specific targets against Babylon. Each bowl, seal, trumpet does not take up the same length of time necessarily. Pretty much the last thing that has to happen here is the collapse of Babylon and God's going to judge them. So, so we've seen in this book so far, mostly it's been worldwide distress, the plagues that have come on the earth. It's been the persecution of the people. Most of the rest of this book is going to focus on the political situation. It's going to focus on the king, the Antichrist, and his false empire. And uh, it's going to fall, because that's what's being prophesied here. The 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lord and praised him for what? For putting down the rage of the nations with his own power, taking the throne and pouring out justice. Justice, that's a great word, but sometimes when we say justice, what we mean is kindness. It's not the same thing. Justice is getting what you deserve, which means if you're guilty, get punished. If you're innocent, then you're going to go free, or if you're pardoned. And this is what he says. There will be judgment for God's enemies and reward for the rest. That's what's going to happen at the finish. And this passage is actually making reference to a, a chapter we studied not long ago on Wednesday, Psalm 2. Let me read this and see if you can't make comparison to the verses we just read. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. That's the attitude of Babylon. That's the attitude of the Antichrist and even a lot of people today. We've got to get rid of the shackles of God and his Christ. We've got to cast off this oppressive patriarchal story that comes from Scripture. We've got to get rid of this Christian oppression that is binding society and keeping us from moving forward. But he who sits in the heavens wrings his hands and worries, what am I going to do about all this? Is that what God does? Does God see the rage of man and panic? You can make as many sci-fi movies about it as you want. Men are not going to assault heaven and kill the gods. If they could be killed, they weren't God in the first place. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He's like, oh yeah, your wrath is real scary. You want to see mine? Like, We're going to get you, God. And it says he laughs. It's like, imagine people coming and bringing like, you know, their doctrine. We have resolved that we will no longer be bound by the scriptures or by the Lord and Jesus Christ and Christianity's got to come to an end. And God's like, <laughs> okay, that's, that's real cute. No, we're serious. He goes, yeah, well, I am too. We're angry. He goes, you want to see my anger? And this is why you get this verse here in Revelation. You've begun to rage. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants has come. God is not impressed by the tyrants among men, least of all the Antichrist. He's not impressed by philosophers that sit there with their glasses and just kind of smugly look down their nose at the church and say, it's really a shame that we still believe these things. All these poor idiot people that still believe. Or these strong men that stand up. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I'm my own person. I'm the captain of my own ship. God's not impressed by that. God is king. Jesus is king. And we, likewise, are to be witnesses in a defiled nation just like these two were. You're the testimony that God has left. 
They were the two lampstands. Well, guess what? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't look at the world and say, somebody's got to do something about this. You're the one God has called to do something about this. You're the one he's called to speak. Well, I don't know if I know the answers. You don't need to be the one with all the answers. You don't need to be a lawyer. You need to be a witness. What has God done for you? I once was blind, but now I see. If we continue down this path of sin, the Lord is going to judge us. You got any evidence? I've got the Bible. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Then you just need to take my warning because it's true. Well, I don't know if I can prove it empirically. You don't have to. God is, God is justified in his judgment when you testify. When you go out and you tell the world that the king is coming. While everyone else rages, we stand as God's voice telling the truth even though no one likes it. And I love to say this, but I'll just remind you again, don't be deceived into thinking that our cultural and political allies in this fight are going to be with us always. They won't. You get rid of one thing, then we're going to have to take a stand on something else, and they might not be with us. But you know what? I can't stand the woke folks, but I'll tell you one thing. I, I can't take these Christians anymore either. They just, they're never happy. We can't get anything done with these people around. And they're always talking about doom and gloom, and it's always depressing. And they say that we're all sinners. Can you imagine such a thing? And while you live, you might not live to see yourself vindicated before men. You might not live to see the nations come to repentance. You might not live to see revival. Or even the people that know you say, wow, you were right all this time. But one day you will be vindicated before all your enemies, just like these two witnesses are. When you likewise return with the Lord in glory, they're going to take one look at you and realize he was right. She was right all this time. And what message is that that we're spreading? That the king is coming. The king is coming and you must repent and bow today. In his love, the king has sent out emissaries and says, before I invade my homeland and take back the throne that is rightfully mine, I will offer anyone a pardon that comes to me and bows the knee. I just don't really know. I, just, I, like, I like spiritual things. I'm just not really religious. Like, Listen, you either bow the knee willingly now and receive all the blessings of being a child of God, or you bow the knee later, forcibly, and get sent off to a lake of fire forever. Well, that seems kind of strong. I don't know if people like that. Y'all, people speak strong about every little stupid thing today. Have you noticed? People get online and post rant videos about things that no one cares about. People stand up about these, these issues that, like, even on the, you watch sports TV sometimes. It's like you're arguing over, you know, who's the best rebound, you know, the seventh best rebounder of all time. And they're sitting there yelling at each other. It's like, does it, who cares, man? It's an interesting conversation, perhaps, but we're really going to get this upset about it. And then we're going to come to the gospel and say, well, speak softly. <laughs> we tried that experiment, didn't we? We tried it in the church. And we have to say we, don't put it on somebody else. We tried it. We said, we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about blood. We're not going to talk about, you know, salvation. We're going to let the kids just kind of do their thing. And if they want to ask about Jesus, we'll be right there for them. That milk toast, soft serve, seeker friendly Christianity. What happened? All those kids went off to college. And they met somebody that was not seeker friendly. It says, you either stand on this or you're an oppressive, bigoted person. You either stand in the streets and burn it all down or you're a horrible person. And they come home and you don't even recognize them. Because somebody was willing to speak strongly and say it with their chest. 
and say they're lies. They're foolish, ridiculous, risible lies. Why can't we speak the truth with that same strength and force? Jesus loves you and he's offering you forgiveness. No, I don't know if I want to. You don't have a choice. You must bow the knee to the king. I don't bow my knee to anybody. Well, then you will spend forever separated from everything that is good and joyful and wonderful in eternity. When we see that Ark of the Covenant in the heavenly temple, don't forget that, by the way. The earthly temple was built as a template of the one that is in heaven. We have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is, but it seems like it might be in heaven. I wonder if that one got raptured. Who knows? It reminds us that no one can really threaten God's presence, can they? going to menace God's people. We're going to stand in his temple and declare that we are God. We're going to remove the scriptures. We're going to get rid of prayer. We're going to press Christianity to the fringes. You can't get rid of God because he is seated in the heavens. The ark, which represents his presence, is safe and secure, and you can't touch it. And the moment you take a look at it, hailstones start falling from heaven. And one day he will return to afflict the world with his mighty power. Christian, you are a herald of love, but you know you're also a prophet of doom. The end is coming. And the question for you today is, will you turn from your old life, renounce the old one, and say, I'll serve Jesus today from now on. I'm not going to try to butter you up. Come on, Jesus would just love to have you. He would, but you owe him that. You owe him that. And for those of you who are witnesses today, do not be deterred by the oppression of men, by those that speak out, that mock and laugh and scoff and even get violent or even get forceful and insulting. You stand up and you speak the truth bravely because you will be vindicated when the king returns.